Chapter 49, Philadelphia. In the spring of 1995, I decided I was ready to lecture before the Association of Avian Veterinarians, a worldwide group of veterinarians whose primary interest is treating birds. I polished up my first aid and wound management manuscripts and sent a copy to the part of the AAV deciding who will be speaking at their yearly meeting. 
continuing to work my practices while I was waiting for a reply. The horse industry still had not recovered from the tax changes of the 1980s, continuing to decline. Creston Oaks Arabians went out of business, and Sarah from Thistledown Farms closed down as well. She wanted to know if I wanted two of her horses. I told her I would love to have horses at my house again, and she dropped off Candy Bar, a brown thoroughbred, and Casey, a light brown gelding. I continued to drive through central and southern California to take ostrich calls, and I routinely met up with Susan. One weekend I drove to Agua Dulce, not for calls, but to attend a wedding for one of Susan's girlfriends. We missed the wedding, but participated in the dinner afterwards. Susan and I sat next to each other around a table with six other people. The festive celebration and alcohol loosened tongues, bringing forth questions best left alone. You two are obviously in love with each other, exclaimed a woman across the table. Thank you, Susan replied, smiling, flashing her eyes, the way she always accepted a compliment, pushing forth a satisfied glow, and me right next to her nodding my head, as though we were the coolest item on earth, both of us feeling so wonderfully giddy about the tryst. When do you plan on becoming married? she asked. Susan and I looked at each other. We had been maintaining a distance and were not holding hands. Surprised, but not really, that others could see through our sham. Our feelings for each other were so intense. We are business acquaintances, and we are married to different people, Susan announced, explaining to all she was accompanying me on these trips to increase her knowledge of ostrich medicine. The woman across the table remained unconvinced of our public declarations of abstinence. I want to know what I could say to my husband to let me go on an extended trip with my veterinarian, she wondered aloud. Some weekends I needed to stay home to attend to family matters. In June 1995, Mary was asked to sing at the wedding of a daughter of a couple she developed a close friendship with while singing in Monterey. Rick and Carol's daughter, Jennifer, was having a wedding in an outdoor venue on the Monterey Peninsula. I drove the family in our blue Aerostar van up to Monterey early Saturday morning. Adam just turned three years old and Abby was nine months old. I pulled our young family up in front of the Monterey Doubletree Inn, and we proceeded to disembark. The Doubletree was the same hotel Mary headlined years before. Waiting for the Mercedes-Benz convertible to move off, I waited in front of the red curb for valet service, mildly embarrassed about the van's bug-splattered windows and dingy exterior. Mary hadn't had time to get the thing clean before we left. Word we might be late, we dressed halfway before leaving the house. Now we just needed a few minutes for final do-overs in our room. I was in my shirt and tie, and Mary was wearing a long black dress. She needed to put on nylons and get out of her flats. Leaving the keys in the ignition, I walked to the sliding passenger door and opened it with a whoosh, revealing a typical family scene. Two youngsters strapped in their car seats with piles of stuff all around. You know what I mean. Lots of trash, toys, and food on the bench seat and the floor of the van. The young bellman walked up to assist. I felt mildly embarrassed about such a scene happening in front of this upscale place. Quickly, I pushed the thought away. The kids needed their freedom, and I directed the bellboy which suitcases to gather from inside the rolling garbage container. Adam unbuckled himself and was maneuvering toward the opening. Mary pushed past me, bending down, reaching far to get a better reach. She unfastened Abby. That's when I saw it, the red lollipop hanging off the black dress on Mary's left butt cheek, its white handle pendulating back and forth merrily, focusing the bellboy's eyes on the mesmerizing scene. I felt we were the Beverly Hillbillies breaking out of the farm for a weekend of fun, 
Pulling the lint-covered lollipop from Mary's dress, I threw it back into the garbage truck, as I announced to the bellboy, We don't get out much anymore. The bellboy did not comment, maintaining a straight face as he showed us and our suitcases to our room. Mary and I hurriedly changed for the wedding, but we needed to get the kids dressed up before proceeding on. She was putting Abby in a dress, and she asked me to help Adam. I dressed him in a suit, and Mary handed me his new black socks. Nodding self-congratulations at my good job, I smiled at him in his dapper outfit. Time for shoes, I said, looking in the shoebox to see Mary had done the laces already. I pulled the new shoes out of the box and pushed Adam's feet into them. Once I changed, we were off to the wedding. The outdoor wedding was a relaxed affair. The weather granted us warmth and sunshine. Mary sang wonderfully, as usual, and we were smiling and happy. After eating, we mingled amongst the guests. Our three-year-old boy was having a hard time walking in his new shoes. I shrugged it off, thinking some new shoes just take a while to become comfortable. Can you check Adam's shoes? Mary couldn't stand the awkward walk any longer. Sure. I pulled him next to me and undid his shoes. As I felt inside of them, I realized I had not removed the wadded-up paper inside the shoes the manufacturer had so thoughtfully included as part of the purchase. The poor boy had been walking in shoes half as long as they should have been. Later that month, I received confirmation from the AAAV, telling me that they accepted the lecture for the ostrich session for the AAAV's annual convention in Philadelphia. I was speaking on ostrich first aid and wound management. Mary stayed home watching over the farm and the kids. I called Susan to see about company. She congratulated me and agreed to be my travel companion. Meeting her at the Fresno airport, we flew to Philadelphia together. The hotel was in the middle of downtown Philly. Susan rented a car so she could investigate cemeteries. She was looking for genealogy clues to her ancestors' whereabouts. We used the car to spend a night out on the town, but realized we were too unfamiliar with the city to find any place we felt safe. The part of the town that we were in was not conducive to a touring couple. It was dark, empty, and unwelcoming, so I stopped at a liquor store to buy some Corona beers, and we hunkered down in the hotel room every evening. As a speaker at the conference, I had free entrance to other lectures and labs, and I took advantage of this, learning new techniques and ideas. But it was different. My lecture and the other lecture and labs were tiring. Now the conferences were becoming a drag. Or maybe, finally, an inkling of my current situation was sinking in. Possibly there was a voice inside me emerging from all the darkness asking, just what the fuck are you doing? At the end of the week, Susan and I flew back to Fresno. Initially, we were combining that with a trip to the hills, to celebrate ourselves. We were going to take another two days to drive into the western Sierras to replicate the day of my birthday two years earlier, when we spent that idyllic day wandering the gold country. But now, I didn't feel like I wanted to party. Maybe I was catching something, getting sick. The plane ride back was a tedious affair. Or maybe that's what started me with this rethink. We had to leave our hotel at 3.30 in the morning, to make the flight west. Overcrowding wasn't the issue, far from it. There were probably 12, 13 people on this early morning flight from the East Coast. Susan brought along a story about her grandfather's exploits in China during World War II. She knew this stuff piqued my interest, but not today. All I could feel was the relentless droning from the engines. I felt different, apart, depressed even. Unlike other days, though, I didn't seek Susan out. Didn't feel the need for her as strongly as I did before. I refocused, 
staying in my seat with the airplane hum hurting my head, trying to read her manuscript. It was interesting. China was a total mess towards the end of the war, and calcium was in such short supply the only supplements came from the ground bones of the dead. But my headache stopped me from delving deeper. I set the piece down and walked to the back. Finding three empty seats, I made a bed by lifting the armrests. Lying down, I closed my eyes. It was probably 6.30, maybe 7 in the morning, the middle of the night back home. Still, the constant droning and occasional lurching of the aircraft kept my tired body awake. I was becoming irritable, restless, realizing I needed a break from Susan. We had been way too close for too many days. Once we arrived back in Fresno, I rented a hotel room where we crashed. We were both too tired to make any decisions to drive anywhere. After napping until the afternoon faded, I told Susan I didn't want to go to the Sierras. I needed to get home to my family. Mary was understandably angry with me for being an absent husband. She developed a strong friendship with Robin, who was working with her at the ranch, confiding about everyday feelings and fears and other ideas best shared between a married couple. Mary enrolled us in a marriage counseling course, which we attended weekly for a few months, even treating me to a night at the Alp Farm Inn in San Luis Obispo for an intimate encounter, but tensions remained high between us. One night, we agreed to a dinner at Buena Tavola, the restaurant owned by the kids' godparents, the same place we had Abby's baptismal breakfast. I drove us into San Luis and parked close to the restaurant. I was putting coins into the meter on Marsh Street when Mary got out. Without waiting for me, she went into the eatery. I followed after, opening the door on my own, meeting in front of the dining table. The eating area was small, holding about ten tables. Most had already filled. Quiet dinner conversation floated here and there amidst the tinkle of flatware. We took a small table in front, looking onto Marsh, across from the courthouse, sitting directly across from each other. I pulled up my chair and looked at her. She was frowning, her lips drawn tight. She wouldn't look at me. We did not speak until the waitress came over to take our order. When she left, we started to discuss ourselves. Skirting the usual small talk, we quickly entered into a heated argument that escalated into a tense-filled dialogue, drowning out the rest of the diners. But it didn't stop us from eating. And eating didn't prevent us from arguing. Mary and I continued between bites of food, although we declined dessert. We were done with our meal and with each other. It was time to go. We pushed our chairs back and gathered up our coats. As we headed out the door, the entire room erupted into applause because we were leaving. I expanded my interest in the Santa Barbara Botanical Gardens, enrolling in a multi-course program called Certificate in California Horticulture, participating in their various weekend seminars such as Water in the California Garden. The certificate program offered courses in garden design, Mediterranean exotic flora 1 and 2, and native flora 1 and 2. Susan enrolled along with me. The regular classes occurred midweek, usually Tuesday or Thursday, while the occasional tour or seminar took place on Saturdays and sometimes Sundays. The nights I needed to stay over, probably all of them, I rented a room from the coolest, seediest motel ever. I never thought it was seedy, nor did Susan, but Mary did when I pointed it out on a walk once. And Joanna hated it too. And it had the coolest name ever, the Californian. It was just down the street from the fish company, on one side of Stern's Wharf, making it the most romantic getaway spot in the world. That's why I told Joanna about it. 
Joanna was one of those tagalongs we all end up with as we wander through life. Uptight people call these friends stalkers, but I never felt that way with Joanna. Joanna's seed came from Sweden, or Norway. I first noticed her when she was in high school, driving a VW Bug into the gas station I worked at when I was married to Mel, and having that affair with Patty. She had the biggest, prettiest brown eyes, and she had that hot, tall, blonde Swedish body and great boobs. But I was busy going to college, so I didn't have time to pay attention to her, although she dropped a tease right from the first fill-up, always lingering, smiling, you know, with that mesmerized, youthful look of infatuation whenever she needed gas. And she never asked for favors, like free gas. Sometimes she'd leave me a present, like a cookie or something. I can't remember because I wasn't that impressed. But still, like a good stalker, she kept in touch. But you shouldn't call someone a stalker if they have benefits for you, like presents, can you? During one of these updates, she wanted to meet up again. I don't know why she called. Evidently, she had a boyfriend, because I suggested she take him there. Anyway, Susan and I rented the same room in that old seedy hotel called the California, only a block from Stern's Wharf in downtown Santa Barbara. The few people who made up the staff at the hotel soon recognized us and which room we wanted. Besides seeing Susan on a periodic basis, I was feeding a growing need to learn more about the plants that could live under the oaks and in the sunny meadows right around my house. I collected specimens, usually cuttings from tours as well as branches from plants, that the instructors brought into the class. Placing these samples in wet paper towels, I put them into plastic bags, making sure they remained moist until I brought them to my greenhouse. I was attempting to make a beautiful garden under the oak trees in the area of heat, low humidity, winter frosts, occasional snows, and under constant predation by gophers and deer. It was a daunting task. Many of the plants I did successfully grow in the greenhouse could succumb to any of these perils. However, I also found plants able to thrive and multiply in these adverse conditions, and I could take cuttings from these plants to propagate more of them. Year by year, the walls of the garden took shape as these hardy plants matured, and newer ones were planted right next to them. Evidently, the orderliness of the plant succession, the success of my gardens, was paramount to me at that point. And that's interesting. I'm so focused on nurturing plants when I'm pushing so hard to tear the family apart. For some reason, being at place didn't make it home for me until I invested in it. Like when I remodeled Martha's home. That's it. A sense of place. Once I developed my sense of place, I worked hard to keep it that way, keep it home, for it was my only haven. I learned to rebuild these places every three years, when moving trucks came, ripping us from our familiar contacts because Dad was following a new rainbow. And so, I knew that everyone is uprooted to find his or her rainbows, and the best thing to do is make us secure a fort in the place you have at that time. That was my mantra. That's what grounded me in the face of ongoing swirls, my sense of place. End of chapter.
Thank you for listening. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book or an e-book, as well as an 11-disc audiobook set, or can be downloaded from the audiobook site Spotify. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com. Thank you for listening.